this event's been put together today for two wonderful debut novels, uh, which in their own way share certain themes which we will be discussing over the course of the next 45 minutes or so. Um, Eleanor Anstruther's A Perfect Explanation is a novel about, inspired by a family history. Um, and we will talk about the nitty gritty of exactly what that family history is a little bit further along. Uh, so it is ostensibly an imagined uh, reenactment of events that happened in the early part of the 20th century and in specifically on one day in the late 1950s? 1964. 1964. Um, it's a beautifully written book. It's, it's incredibly moving um, and full of tragedy and empathy. Um, and I would encourage you all to, to read it. Um, we are also joined by Paul Mendez, whose book Rainbow Milk uh, was published in early 2020, just as lockdown was starting, right? Um, <laughs> which for some authors was a tragedy, actually, being published <laughs> at, at that time of year. But um, it's been a, a very successful publication. And similarly, Paul's book is inspired in part by uh, experiences from Paul's life and from his family life. And we'll be talking about where those threads and the intersections of truth and fiction overlap over the course of the next yeah, 45 minutes or so. I will start by asking them to read from each of their books and then we'll talk for a while and then I'll open the floor to you guys to ask questions. So if you can think of some questions in the next half hour or so, put up your hand and then there is no roving mic, but yeah, I will uh, repeat your questions back. And then we should all be done within about sort of 45 minutes, an hour. Um, but if I can start by asking, who should I pick on first? Uh, <laughs> Eleanor, sure. do you want to read sure. from the, I think what, I, what we've said is it's probably simplest, it's always simplest with readings to read from the very beginning because it requires no explanation. Um, exactly. but, you, but you would like to probably give, give a little bit I'll of explanation. A little bit of explanation. Um, it's no reveal to say it's about um, how and why my father was sold by his mother to his aunt for 500 pounds. And um, it was a story that I knew all my life, and it wasn't uh, particularly shocking in the family, which in itself is quite shocking. So uh, as I got older, I realized this was shocking, and I started to investigate. And what I've done is string the emotional content through the facts that I knew. Um, it has three points of view. Fenetta, who I'm going to read now, in 1964, and then her mother, Enid and Joan, so I'm going to read the opening uh, chat. well, not the whole chapter, just a bit of it, um, where we first meet Fenetta in her kitchen in 1964. What irritated Fenetta about her mother was not the lack of love, but the obvious hatred. Lack of love was easy to explain. Her mother had loved others more. Her love was finite. There was only so much to go round, but her hatred was endless. Fenetta had tried in myriad ways to understand it, but at 44, she was tired. It was inexplicable. She had to live with it. For her own daughter, she felt little either way. She neither loved nor hated her. She felt ambivalent towards her and the ways about her, her presence, how she did her hair or poured the tea. Her daughter was a stranger who moved with a stranger's mood a thing that passed and left little trace, unlike her son, for whom she felt a love so crushing she could only watch him constantly, whether, whether he was there or not. She wondered sometimes if it mattered this black and white way of her heart. 
But what could she do? There was either feeling or there wasn't. And neither force, ambivalence nor adoration had dissuaded her from duty. She'd fed and bathed them both, divorced their father, and sent them away to school as soon as possible. They had grown up. Now she found herself back in the role for which she was made, and in which she felt the least and most comfortable, that of looking after her mother. Her mother's nursing home was in Hampstead. It looked pretty from the outside, a large red brick house on a quiet street, but the inside had been stripped of beauty. It had unfortunate lighting and a lift that didn't work, formica tables, single beds and nylon sheets. It was her mother's just desserts. She looked at the letter again while the kettle boiled. Coming Tuesday, no need to tell her, better not. I won't stay long. Shall we lunch beforehand, say 1 p.m., usual place? Ian. Better not to tell her for whom, him or her, their mother? Obviously, she'd had to tell the nurses. They liked to know the name of every visitor. But she'd made it clear. She'd made it absolutely clear that they weren't to say a word until she got there. She'd be the one to say, Ian's here. He's come to see you. Not the nurses with their incontinent nonsense, spilling it out as though it was something thrilling. No, Fanetta would be the one to tell her. Perhaps she'd have to make him wait outside the door, but it would be her who'd do the spilling, with care and consideration and just enough distance to duck. Her mother might think her a bloody nuisance, but she wasn't cruel or stupid. She knew what it all meant. She put the letter back in its envelope, propped it again on the shelf beside her notebook, and got her cup and saucer from the cupboard. Fanetta was tall and beautiful. She had hooded eyes, blue eyes like a sculptor's nemesis, set in an angular face framed by thick, dark hair that waved gently without curlers. She'd cut it to shoulder length and wore it clipped back like a schoolgirl. She was thin, as her mother was, with elegant hands that drew attention from her face when men were desperate to look somewhere else. She wore no rings. Her failed marriage was discarded in the bottom drawer of her bureau. Great. Um, <laughs> quick technical question. Has Eleanor's microphone just gone? It has, okay. Could everyone hear that okay? You could, because I can always swap if that's... Shall I do that? Okay, look, I'll, I'll do that and see if we can do quick technical swap. Okay, let's see whether we can do this. Okay. Do you want to take it? Mm -hmm. still projecting. <laughs> I'll, I'll just make sure that I shout. Okay. Does that work? Um, it's, it's less important that you can hear me. <laughs> um, Paul, I don't know whether you're going to read from the beginning or not. Having said that. Um, can, my mic's on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, one thing I should say, the beginning of... I don't know whether you're going to read from the beginning. I'm not going to read from the beginning. The beginning no. of Paul's book uh, is written in this extraordinary Jamaican patois. This is a character from late, in, set in the late 1950s. And I was explaining to him beforehand that I had the privilege of listening to it as an audio book, and he reads it in the, for the audio book <coughs> so spectacularly, beautifully and wonderfully. So I don't Thank know whether you. or not you're going to skip that but move to the next bit. Yeah, I need to warm my jamaican yeah, up. <laughs> yeah, we're in Cornwall. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, 
Uh, well done, Lodi. Oh, what do you put? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry. Yeah. So anyway, um, I'm going to read from um, page 102 and 3. So um, Jesse is uh, a 19-year-old um, young black gay man who um, has grown up in the West Midlands in the black country. Um, he's been raised by his mother and uh, his white adoptive um, stepfather, if you like. Um, he's been, as I said, disfellowshipped from the community of Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, and this is sort of his last Christmas. Uh, well, Jehovah's Witnesses don't celebrate Christmas, but this is Christmas Day 2001. Um, Christmas, he stayed in his room with crisps and snacks, craving a spliff, even a cigarette. His parents and the, te and the children watched TV downstairs all day. He was not invited to eat with them. He'd bought Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin, finally, which his GCSE English teacher had encouraged him to read. It dawned on him that the novel depicted a gay relationship and he panicked to think she might have recommended it to him because he was a black gay like Baldwin. Still, he managed it in one day from cover to cover. He thought it striking that a black man could, in the first paragraph, have his main character look himself in the mirror and see a tall, blonde white man standing there in his dressing gown, holding a tumbler of whiskey. And it brought a tear to his eye because he recognized that if he was a tall, blonde, white boy, everything would have been different. He recognized that he had thought of himself as a blonde white boy all his life. He'd never thought of himself as a black boy or compared himself to other black people. He'd known so few black people and those his mother knew she often derided for being too black, doing things in too black a way, being late because they were too black, being disorganized because they were too black, being rough and uneducated because they were too black. He wouldn't have been treated so harshly if he wasn't too black. He wouldn't be cooped up in a prison cell, an exile within the family home, too embarrassed to accept any of his workmates' invitations to spend Christmas with them and their families if he wasn't too black. He knew he would have to spend the rest of his life convincing people that he wasn't too black. He managed to keep himself together until Easter, when the witnesses, separately from the main branches of Christendom, marked the Passover, which he refused to attend. He came home from work that night, stoned, just as Graham was closing down the house to go to bed. They looked at each other. Jesse, unexpectedly to himself, started to cry. Sorry, he said. I'm sorry. He kept saying, I'm sorry. He moved towards Graham and put his head on his shoulder. Graham remained unmoved, hands by his sides. All Jesse wanted was some love. He hugged him, squeezed him, grabbed handfuls of his flesh, smelled his neck, kissed him, leaked tears into him. Graham firmly grabbed Jesse by both arms and held him away from himself. Through his teeth, he said, you have to get out of this house. Um, so yeah, we've got two novels here that are shaped by family experience. Uh, and we were talking beforehand uh, about 
you know, percentages, percentages of the story that are real and not. And I think it's fair to say that in the case of Eleanor's book, ostensibly everything that happened uh, in terms of what happens in the course of the narrative is based on real events. Absolutely. Apart from the very, very last scene, I had to make some just yes. little changes. Um, but everything else. And then with Paul, there's a lot more that's being made up in terms of narrative, but ostensibly the character's experiences and his starting point mm -hmm. and the journey he goes on are shaped by experiences that you've had in real life. Um, apart from the thread that I just read from, right. so um, I, my father's black, um, he's married to my mother, um, but I created the character of Graham as a white adoptive father to um, enable a discussion on what it's like for a black child growing up in a white supremacist, white majority world, um, you know, literally being raised to be white and to forget everything that would identify you as being a black person, especially being a black male. Um, so yeah, that's why I, I created the character of Graham. But generally speaking, through the novel, Yes, I come from a Jehovah's Witness background. I'm from the West Midlands. I'm from a Jamaican background. I'm gay. I became a sex worker um, after leaving the Witnesses. Um, but every scene, every character within the novel is fabricated to sort of uh, for dramatic effect, if you like. Um, so a question I think that pertains to both of you is how vulnerable you felt putting such ostensibly personal narratives out there and how you dealt with that in the writing. Sure. I mean, while I was writing it, I didn't feel vulnerable at all around no. it. I just thought, here's a story that needs telling. Um, and I had my father's blessing to tell it, and he was very happy for me to tell it. It was really opened up like a flower, I always think, you know, when I went to him and, and asked him, the first question I asked him was, what was your mother, what was her name? I didn't know her name. And, and then what would you say to her if she were alive now? And he just opened and wanted to speak. So all the way through, I just felt brilliant. I've been handed this amazing story, and I'll just get on with it. But on publishing it, um, I experienced quite a different um, um, reaction. And then I felt very vulnerable indeed. But I was kind of naive. I, I went into it naively, really. I think I hadn't really understood that because I was writing a family story I had ownership over it, but my whole family had ownership over it too. And I hadn't really given that the proper credence that it deserved. And so um, they felt that they had a right to react, which they did and do. And so yes, I went through quite a few years, certainly the first year of publication, really vulnerable around it. Um, what about you, Paul? I mean, there's a different dynamic going on there because, yeah, because you're not narrating the facts as they were, but yeah. Yeah, also, um, you know, because I'm dealing with, you know, I do come from a Jehovah's Witness community. I come from a Jamaican community. Um, you know, I'm a gay man and I've done sex work. So those two very things alone, without any explanation, sort of would find themselves being anathema to, to, my, um, to, to the situation of my upbringing. But because of that, I felt free, actually, to, to, you know, I didn't feel guilty in terms of writing the book. I felt overjoyed to be given the privilege of writing the book. I got my book deal, then I finished the book. And that period of doing the research and sort of really sort of getting inside my writing for the first time in my life, because prior to that, I'd been doing sort of full-time hospitality jobs. And, you know, if you've worked in hospitality, you'll know that, you know, you're working sort of double shifts. Then you go home thinking, oh, I've got the day off tomorrow, maybe I'll do some writing. You get up at 11 in the morning, you just want to chill. Like, you don't want to apply yourself to anything. 
so you lose your momentum. Um, so um, getting the book deal was massive for me in terms of, I mean, it was a very small amount of money, but it just meant someone trusted me enough to do this. Um, but because I'd left all kind of notions of familial, um, or just needing to impress my family, I guess, or needing their say-so in anything, um, which is where our stories really sort of diverge mm. in that sense. Um, I felt no obligation to to impress them or to involve them in any way in in the narrative. So for me, it just took on a real kind of pleasure, pleasurable. Or oh, ask their permission. Process. Sorry, but you, yeah, exactly. Which was a big one for me. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you know, they've all come back to me now that the book's successful and they've read reviews. <laughs> so proud of you, Paul. <laughs> Always knew you could do this. You, know, you got this. Uh, you ate that. Um, but, and you know, that's fine. It's better than nothing. I've, I've either heard or read somewhere that you had written the book in the first person mm -hmm. and then you went back and rewrote it all in the third person. And I wondered whether that was partly because of a sense of the vulnerability of it being ostensibly. Absolutely. Confused. So, um, in the first, so the whole point of Rainbow Milk, um, going back 15 years, was to chart the trajectory I underwent from being this very devout Christian teenager to then being disfellowshipped from that community. So basically excommunicated, if you like, um, at the age of 17. And then five years later, living in London in a gay shared household and um, living as a sex worker. Um, I'd, under, I'd, I'd suffered uh, an injury after being sexually assaulted. And so for me, I had this sort of bracket situation where I was like, how the hell did I get from there to there? You know, And it was the first time I'd realized that. I think until then, it was all bravado that took me away from the indoctrination that I'd grown up with. Um, let me just sort of break down every aspect of that indoctrination by going this far. But it was only when I'd sort of found myself you know, waiting for a HIV test result, basically, um, that I kind of realized what this interval in my life had amounted to. Um, and so that was when I really started writing. Um, and it was very personal, it was very cathartic. It was like, you know, just checking in on myself, like, who am I now? Where have I been? What have I done? And the novel has evolved from that. Um, and so when I submitted a first person um, manuscript, I tried so hard to fictionalize it, but it was still me. I was still saying I, I was still saying me. And so you're very much within that experience. Um, it was already five months late when I submitted this uh, first person manuscript. And three days later, I emailed my publisher and said, scrap it, I'm gonna write this in third person. And I have such an amazing publisher that she said, off you pop, do what you need to do. Um, so I spent the next three months um, not even rewriting, starting absolutely from scratch in third person um, with a new character name. That's when I created the character of Graham as well um, and a completely new structure for the book. And I banged it out in two months um, and then brought back the, the Norman section, the section set in 1959 at the beginning of the book, which I'd written a couple of years before, brought that back to create this kind of whole sort of generational saga that the novel as we know it is now. Um, but without sort of switching to third person, I just wouldn't have had the space 
it just freed me completely to be able to, you know, um, not be me and to watch someone else go through all the things that I went through and to appreciate what I went through anew, mm. you know, because I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. But you may not have been able to write that third person if you hadn't written the first. No, that I process. think that was absolutely part of the process. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, yeah. I wonder whether you, Paul talks about having a moment there where, you know, waiting for an HIV test where you're suddenly looking back on life and thinking, hang on a second, what's happened? Mm. You talked about the fact that for a very long time it was just an accepted fact that your father had been sold for 500 pounds. Mm. What was it that precipitated you suddenly stopping and thinking, hang on a second, there's a story here? And then also, just to follow on from what Paul said, I just wondered about how you chose to frame the story as you did mm. in, in, in concentrating on the voices that you chose to tell that story. I mean, there were a few distinct moments, certainly. I think um, I had a, a moment up in my studio one day and I was writing something else and I got a very clear image of Fagus, who um, was my uncle, who came to me very clearly and said, find my grave which was a hell of a thing. So I went, that was really why I went to my father and said, where's he buried? And um, he said, he's buried under flats, you'll never find him. And I thought, hang on a minute. Um, so that was a sort of moment. Um, How long ago was this? That was back in, uh, let me try and think now, 2007. Okay. 2006, because I was pregnant, I remember. So I began the whole sort of process then. Um, and then there were other bits, I think, I think becoming a mother maybe maybe realise that actually if you've been sold it's going to be more than just a kind of casual thing that you say over lunch, even though it was a really casual thing he'd say over lunch. So it's, I think it crept upon me slowly. Um, and, and then I think his response when I first started asking him about it, he was so open to talk about it. And it just, I think, I think, I think within the family because it had been normalised so much, it was a very slow, slow, gradual process of just unpeeling and realising how shocking and how shocking and how shocking this story was. And how did you decide how to frame it? Because that's the thing, you've got a family history that, you know, the events of which happened, you know, most of the events happened, you know, 80 odd years ago. Mm. You've never met, well, the only, I suppose the only protagonists you've met are your father. Was my dad, and yeah. Did you, did you ever know Finetta? No, oh yes, when I was very little. Right, so, but, yeah. but, you know, these are ancient, mm. this is ancient history in a way. How do you choose how to, how to narrate that story? Trial and error, I'm afraid right, it was. Okay. I mean, it took me a decade to write it, and in that I wrote it completely from scratch four times. Right. And I did first person, was one of them. I also, we talked about this earlier, I spent one whole narrative just focusing on Joan and Pat's relationship, because it was really about what's it about, and it took me seven years, I think, to say, it's about him being sold because originally is it about a fight between the sisters is mm. so as I sort of moved around that of what's it about um, I wrote different versions of it and as well when I each one instead of editing them I just threw them away and started again and I think when I was going through it it feels doesn't it like it's a slog and is it all have I wasted my time mm. no. but actually it meant that when I threw fourth version away and sat down and said, okay, I knew it so well at that point. I knew them so well, their voices were in my head. I'd written every scene from every angle, every central point I'd changed. So it just, yeah, I wrote it. What we have now began as a novella, seven years after beginning, and I wrote it in two months. Oh, wow. But it's that, yeah, it's the process. Yeah, exactly. And Paul, you talked about that section 
at the beginning with Norman's story. Um, now that's the one bit, you know, that's the bit of your story that's that's history, that's you know, um, in a way shared with um, Eleanor's story. How much of that is based on? true events that unfolded and how much did you I mean did you have to research that absolutely to... everything um so I knew nothing about my what's ostensibly my paternal grandfather yeah. who um came to the UK um from Jamaica in 1956 um with my grandmother and she was pregnant with their first child my dad um so all I know about him is that he came here fit and healthy um and soon after arriving, started to suffer with migraine headaches and blurred vision. Um, Jamaican men don't go to the doctor, fact. Um, but my grandmother eventually, when he started to really sort of basically be blind, um, took him to the doctor. Doctor basically didn't take him that seriously at all. Uh, in fact, told my grandfather that he was um, too tall. <laughs> because he was six foot four. I think it was, I don't know, he must have been joking, but like, obviously, you know, my grandfather died, so, you know. Um, but yeah, you're too tall and the sun's very different here to, to how it is in Jamaica, so that's why your, your eyes aren't adjusting to the light. Um, you know, basically he had a brain aneurysm, that's why he was going blind, but doctors weren't taking him at all seriously. And this is, this is why we have, you know, this is part of the reason why we have health inequities in this country, because black people do not trust the doctors to, to give them the right information. This is why we have, um, I'm sorry, ranting now, but this is why we have issues with um, COVID uh, vaccine um, hesitancy yeah, right. as well. Mm -hmm. You know, these things, you know, you look at the Tuskegee trials and all of that kind of thing, you know. Um, you know, this, this is the inheritance that black people have in terms of health, health inequities and, uh, and lack of trust in, in people um, in government, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but anyway, that's all I knew of him. He died when my dad was two years old, so my dad doesn't remember him either. And it's only through little childhood, snippets of childhood conversa conversations with my grandmother. Um, that's all I knew of him. So I felt free to create this fiction around him. Um, and I was working on this um, just two months after um, Amelia Gentleman broke the Windrush scandal in The Guardian. So um, my grandparents, being from the Windrush generation, I was just very sort of invested in who they were. Um, they don't talk about their lives at that time at all. You know, they pretend to have forgotten. There's a lot of shame attached because their lives were really hard when they came here. And they came here to give us the opportunities that they didn't have. Um, and so, you know, I was raised to be white English, effectively, and not to think about Jamaica. That's why I've never been taken there. I've never been shown that. Um, but, um, yeah, I, so I felt free to do the research. I sort of went to the British Library one day, was looking up Jamaican flora and fauna as it would have been back then, the architecture, what the sort of the class system was like, say. Um, and I went home and basically I played Othello, so I knew how to create a character. Um, and I recorded a monologue in what I had created as a voice for this gentleman. Um, and that's what became the first draft, I guess, transcribed mm. of, of his uh, of his narrative in the book. Yeah. And Eleanor, you're, I wonder with you, so many of the um, events and also the voices of the protagonists uh, are, are very strong. And I wondered how much of that is shaped by 
research in terms of documents and letters and any traces of their lives that you found? Well, I was very lucky to have this huge family archive. And I had a year in my dad's studio before he died reading uh, nine volumes of letters between um, Enid and uh, Douglas and a whole case of photographs um, and endless letters and, and books and poetry and all of that. So I had amazing access to the archive. But in terms of voices, um, they just really arrived very strongly in my head. So I did, I had a kind of um, a rhythm and obviously a choice of language was laid out for me. Uh, but they really took up residence in my studio. And I really had to battle. Joan and Pat absolutely took all the oxygen. They really wanted front of stage. Mm -hmm. um, and Enid, meanwhile, uh, sat staring out the window, refusing to turn around for seven years until I had to tell everyone to shut up and she has to turn around and speak to me. But so in that, you do enter a kind of madness, don't you? I think probably with this, those characters live, they exist. And it, it, these were real people, but I've written subsequently fictional characters and it's exactly the same experience. So there they were in my studio and they were talking in my head and I just wrote what I heard. And did you know much about them before you set off on this journey? I knew the family stories, the ones that we'd been fed, which is obviously very different. And that's not to say they're completely wrong. We just could create stories, but they're very simplistic, I think, aren't mm. they? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I certainly got to know them 360. I got to know all the way around them. And I think that's one of the things I really endeavoured to do. With There were no um, villains and heroes. No, I mean, it's the amazing thing in this book is that people do awful things. Yeah. <laughs> Almost everyone seems to do something awful. Dreadful, yeah. But as a reader, all you're left with really is sympathy for absolutely everyone mm. In, mm. in the entire book. I mean, it's an extraordinary achievement, I well, think, that you. sense of empathy. Um, that's just made me lose my thread. That's what I was asking a really interesting question. <laughs> what it was. Oh, um, so both of you, um, I think you probably by structure and also by the timing of what was happening in your life at the time, both of you have, uh, have used wider events as a sort of as a context for, for what happened. So, for example, in, in your book, the First World War is an event that, that robs people actually of lots of the choices that they might make. Mm. So lots of the protagonists are having to live a life uh, and the terms have been dictated by those events mm. of, of the First World War. And you you start the narrative of Jesse just after 9-11. And I wonder whether, for you in particular, whether that was a choice just because of the timing that things happened in your life or whether you wanted to use that sense of a, of a seismic shift in history as a way of marking the, the way that your characters behave. Uh, the latter. Um Norman's narrative as well is, um, I mean, he references the war and obviously the Windrush generation were the Windrush generation and came here because of, you know, the yeah. amount of work that needed to be done after the war. Um, but yet certainly in terms of um, using 9-11 as, if I can say that in a sensitive way, um, but using 9-11 as, um, as a catalyst or a jump off point for Jesse, um, again, it was a, a means of distancing us. You know, I was older. Um, than Jesse when I moved to London. Um, my trajectory in that sense was very different from his. But I wanted him to see 9-11. So when 9-11 happens, he's on field service knocking doors. Um, and uh, a person who, a householder answers the door, says, come in, you need to see what's happening on the news. Um, and it's 9-11. And he realizes what he's watching 9-11 unfold with a gay couple and he doesn't know what he's more shocked by because he's so sheltered. 
and he, you know, it helps him to realize, you know, what he's sort of covering up of his own life because he sees the tenderness that they share. He sees that they have each other to experience this really cataclysmic event with. Um, and he realizes he is alone and that he's not ever, as far as his religion and everything's concerned, ever going to experience that kind of shared, um, shared existence with, with someone um, of, of the same gender. Um, so that was a way for me to sort of, but you know, you're talking a lot about, um, you know, the nine volumes of letters that there are in your family, the fact that your family is incredibly literary, has this incredibly sort of illustrious history. Mine doesn't have that, you know, I told you earlier that my, patern my maternal, sorry, grandfather was illiterate. Mm. You know, that's just two generations ago. I, you know, and this is, you know, a thing for working class people in general, but certainly those of us who live at the, in the intersection of race as well, our histories keep getting interrupted. Yeah. Um, because there just isn't that same um, level of um, need to preserve, I guess. Um, and the habit so, of the archive. Yeah. Within my background, that's just a given. Yeah. But we use, um, I use um, sort of events, political events, historical events, etc., just so that we're on the same page, that mm. the reader and I can be on the same page, that they know the sort of world that I'm talking about. They know the uh, emotional state that Jess is going to be in after seeing yeah. that, thinking that it's actually Armageddon and actually being relieved that it's only 9-11. I mean, can you imagine? Um, so, yeah, that's kind of why I feel the need at times to, 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 to lean on what's actually happening in the world. Mm. And what about the... First World War, so the shadow of the First World War sort of looms large behind the, the events of uh, the characters in the early 20s, not mm. least because you're trying to get the, your grandmother's brother died, is that right? Uh, it would have been great, great uncle, yeah, great exactly. Uncle, yes, yes, yes. yes, I mean, where to start and where to end novel uh, is it's difficult. You've got to yeah. find your bookends, haven't mm. you? Yeah. And you're inciting inf incidents and all of that, you know. And, and I think the death of Ivor, so Ivor would have been the heir. And if Ivor hadn't died, no, none of it would have happened. Yeah. Mm. So that seemed, I didn't start the book there, but that was the event that looms over the narrative, uh, the Between the Wars narrative. Um, and the actual Between the Wars narrative, so when we, f we finally go back in time to 1921, uh, I think, mm. um, that's the moment. Um, I won't say what happens, but something cataclysmic happens to the next heir. Um, and uh, so that, that foreshadowing of the war and Ivor is the same lead-in, really. Yeah, um, for those of you who haven't read the book, Ivor is the heir to the family seat, dies in the war and only has two sisters, and that creates the dynamic by mm. which the question of who becomes the next heir becomes so important. But it was also liberating for Joan is gay, so yeah. that's my great aunt. And the shadow of the First World War and the many, many deaths liberated her to live the life that she wanted to live mm. because she could use the excuse that all the men were dead. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> and did. So there were pluses and minuses. <laughs> um, religion also looms large in both of your stories. We're covering all the big subjects. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> both of your books do this. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. I mean, you manage to weave these brilliant narratives, and they are, they do, they do, you know, contain all these huge themes. Um, religion, in, in the instance of your story, 
a, a, you know, a, a childhood brought up in um, in the confines of. I mean, actually, I wasn't really aware of what being a Jehovah's Witness meant, or what it meant that you miss out on, and also what it meant that you understand. I mean, your description of um, your imagined apocalypse <laughs> was pretty extraordinary. But but so the, the, one of the things I think is interesting is what I'm trying to say is the way that obviously people are looking for solace in religion in both of your books. Mm. Uh, your characters are trying to escape from it, but many of the characters are, you know, drawn to it. Mm. And I wondered how much thought you'd given that. Well, I was obviously led by the facts. Yeah. So, and they were, it was useful to try and understand. Enid was a Christian scientist, and it wasn't something I knew that much about. Mm. And having, now I know quite a lot about it, it and it, for those who don't know, it's, it, in real nutshell, it's simply that um, illness is a sin and do not use medicine, and that includes uh, blood transfusions. Um, and what fascinates me about it, because Enid was a deeply spiritual woman, and I think if she were around now, she might be a kind of on the fringes hippie out there, because she, there's something in the very core of Christian science, which is about the connection between mind, body, spirit, and that we are, that there's a whole, there's a very holistic approach to illness within it. But it's governed by this word sin. <coughs> which really was of its time. I mean, I know that word is still used now within the Christian science community, but certainly back then. And it was, it was Enid's rebellion out of uh, the, the, just the normal church that she was grown up, that she was brought up in, to find something that was a bit way out, really, and that allowed some sort of communion with God, which fitted her, her kind of spiritual heart that she had. She took refuge in it, so she did exactly the opposite to Jessie, mm. um, but again um, became completely contorted by its doctrine. Again, I can't give away too no. much. <laughs> I'm having to stop myself from asking certain questions. Yeah. <laughs> Weirdly, certain similarities mm. Mm. with Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah. yeah, the whole blood, uh, blood transfusion thing. Yeah. Right. So um, Jehovah's Witnesses believe in the Bible absolutely literally, including Acts 15 verses 28 and 29. See, I still remember it. Yeah. <laughs> um, abstain from blood for it is unclean. Um, so there have been countless sensa sensationalized stories in the press for decades now of parents of children who are sick with leukemia or have had a car crash or whatever. Under no circumstances is my child to be given blood. If that, even if that's anything that can save its life. So I carried around um, a, a no blood card um, all the way through my childhood. Every January the 1st or the closest meeting, it would be signed by my parents in the presence of an elder. And I would have to carry that card around with me at all times so that if anything happened, that's, that's the line. Um, but also, um, you know, no birthdays, no Christmas. Mm. Um, you know, nothing. <laughs> um, and just having this idea that you're the chosen ones and that everyone else is going to die at Armageddon. Sorry, guys, you're all going to die at Armageddon, but, you know. Um, there was this date in 1976. 75, yeah, they thought that it was going to happen in 1975. Yeah. So everyone, my dad was um, a witness then, um, and my grandmother. Um, they um, gave up their jobs. Everyone was selling their houses, giving up their jobs. They'd all sort of be wearing A-boards, walking down high streets going, you know, God's kingdom is here. You need to change your lives now and come and join God because you're going to die. 
and everyone was just like, yeah, whatever, punk. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so it just, it was, it was a lot. And then the first January 1976 happened and everyone was just like, okay, uh, stop this. Um, <laughs> so then my, my dad left, met my mother, had me, felt guilty, went back. But it's one thing me. to choose to be a witness or, or a Christian scientist, but it's another to be born into it. Because you, they believe that you are um, lucky to have been raised in that way. So mm. you've never had to sort of um, live the lie of the world. You've been taught the truth, You're and pure. they call it the truth, capital T, capital T. Um, and, you know, so I'm basically an apostate because I've you know, been taught the truth, but I've turned away from it. Uh, and that makes me the worst, worst, worst kind of person as far as they're concerned. And you have to live with that. Mm. There's something strangely, similarly suffocating in terms of being born into this aristocratic I was world. going to say the whistleblower. And that sense, there's no question, again, though the, the unwritten witness is clearly very written. Mm -hmm. yeah. But there's no doubt that the aristocracy have an unwritten, very clear rules. Uh, that you probably only really discover if you break them. Yeah, mm. yeah, and they are. Yeah, I mean, you're uh, well. It's there, there is, <laughs> I was saying to you beforehand. It's a strange. It's a strange thing to compliment Eleanor on this in a way. But the the, the feeling of claustrophobia uh, that you get from reading your book is sort of overwhelming at mm. times. Um, emotionally overwhelming, um, and not very pleasant. At but sure. it's so well, it's so brilliantly realised. But that you. being stuck in that in that world in which you can see that because of the class that they live in and because of the roles that have been dictated to them by by their titles and by the circles they live in, they have no choice. Yeah, you're fodder compared to the edifice. Yeah, mm. you're just fodder, mm. and actually the same can be said of the witnesses. Yeah, I guess so. But I think you know as. You know, from your perspective, being a woman mm. would, you know, because you're not, you can't be the heir. No. So, yeah. Double fodder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just realised what time it is. Uh, we should probably be opening um, uh, some questions from you. So, if, if anyone's got a question, would you want to raise your hand and I'll, uh, you'll have to, oh, man in the pink hat here. We have no roaming mic, so you're going to have to boom. Oh, I can do that. Oh, you can. <laughs> Um, Paul, it's a question for you, and um, I hope this doesn't come over as aggressive, because it's not meant to be. Um, I've got the audio version of the book, and uh, incidentally commenting on the way it's read, and that first chapter is amazing, really, beautifully written. Thank you. Um, but um, one of the things I think, you know, comes through really, really strongly is your graphic, really graphic description of sex, particularly when, you know, of a sex worker. Mm. Um, I've never been a sex worker, and, and, you know, happily I've never used one either. Probably for my chance. Um, it's uh, fine. It's a secret room. Safe space. <laughs> Carry on. Okay, okay. well, at 75, I'd tell you. It was <laughs> <laughs> too late now. Uh, but but just purely by luck, I probably haven't. Um, and, uh, but, but it is, you can grab it. And I just wondered, obviously that is deliberate. It's not probably more graphic than any other book I've ever read. And nothing to do with being gay sex. I mean, be any kind of sex, be sex with yourself and, and, and still be you know, extremely graphic. And you've obviously done that for a reason. Does it, did everyone hear that and get the gist of the question? Why is it so filthy? <laughs> <laughs> Basically. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. 
fine. It's fine. Um, I didn't want to win the bad sex award, basically. Um, so when you see the bad sex award in The Guardian and you read some of these terrible descriptions of sex in, in novels, and I'm afraid, I'm sorry to say this, but it's normally straight white men who do this. I'm sorry, but it just is. Um, they almost always win it, so I think you're right. Well, um, but it's, you know, they just sort of go into this kind of, just write about the sex, you know? Just show us what they're doing. Like, let us be there. The, the way you have with architecture or mm. clothing or food or whatever else you're talking about, the university experience, da-da-da. Why are you sort of going all the way like this <laughs> instead of just telling us what they're doing? Because we know that they're having sex, but like, so give us the sex, you know? So um, that's why I just absolutely had to be as literal as possible with my sex scenes. And also, um, People don't know what it looks like, really, unless they have a particular sort of penchant for certain porn. Um, they don't know what it looks like, the sex between a young black man and an older white man. They just don't know what that looks like. So I felt free, I, again, that this, this idea of freedom that we've been talking about, mm. I felt free because there were so few, few precursors do, doing this kind of thing. Um, but having said that, um, I was one of the first novels I reread while um, writing Rainbow Milk proper was The Suing Poor Library. Um, and that novel really sort of is absolutely upfront about sex. Um, and I just wanted to emulate that, you know, who wouldn't? Also, I mean, you know, it is, it is couched in certain passages which are, you know, beautiful descriptions of, of, of love, mm. you know, so it's not like there's this sort of graphic sex and nothing else. You're, you're, you're describing everything. Yeah, um, it's a full sort of sensory thing. Yeah, it's a holistic nice. thing, you know. Exactly. Mm. Um, any other Thank questions? You. Lady in the front row here. Last question for Eleanor, please. Um, I have similar situations to yours in my family. Mm. Um, and I was told as a teenager that my mother um, had the option of being sold to one of my great aunts. Um, and I was horrified with this at the time. As it happened, she went to live with her for three months, but then decided she didn't want to, so she actually went back to my grandparents. Um, but similar sort of timing, 1922, to, to, to this book, which I've now read three times, um, <laughs> because it's something that I'd never heard of before, and then suddenly there was something that I could relate to. I was wondering if, in your research, I know it was all within the family, had you come across any other families or cases around that time where children were being sold to other members of the family? It's a brilliant question. Um, no, not while I was writing it at all. Since having written it, um, I have met people uh, not who've been... The word sold, is, I think, is an interesting word, isn't it? But uh, money exchanged yeah. for, for instance... Well, actually, I can't say the reason in this. Yeah. But lots of people have come forward to answer your question, saying yes in my family and yes in my family. Slightly different iterations each time, yeah. but I think certainly um, the, 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 the instance of not, it's either not being able to manage the child because there's many and needing help. In fact, that's been mostly it actually, which doesn't take away the trauma of it um, or the sense really that it'll be fine, this can happen and there's no kind of emotional content to it. But, um, yeah, I think it happened a hell of a lot more 
than, well, certainly that I had realised at all. Um, but yes, the word sold is an interesting one, I think, because it's it, money could have been changing hands uh, to help that child later on in life and other. But it, it's worth pointing out in this. I don't know if you felt this. I, I had to question why Joan used that word within. You know, and why did she tell him? Because she didn't have to. So there's lots of aspects to it, and there's lots of ways where a sharing of helping someone else bring up a child effectively can be done without trauma. And then there's lots of ways to do it traumatically, and you can see the choices. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. How did you learn to write? <laughs> Well, I picked up a pen in my left hand. Um, so because I was left-handed, my grandmother tried to, uh, she's really superstitious, so she tried to take the pen away from me and make me write with my right hand. But I insisted on writing with my left hand. And so that's probably why I've become a writer, because I was just so rebellious. <laughs> I've never said that before. So. You, uh, the, you obviously, you put this novel together partly having been writing all the time. Yeah. And more than just keeping a diary. Partly um, keeping a diary, but partly just responding to what was happening in your life and, and writing to it without necessarily any idea of having it published at the time. Yeah. So, um, like I said earlier, constantly sort of keeping in touch with myself. And that, I suppose, grew into, because you've been indoctrinated in this sort of creationist, um, uh, very kind of dictatorial, um, philosophy, or theology actually, of course. Um, I wanted to create a new system of beliefs for myself as well. I wanted to figure out like what I believed, what I thought, what I saw of the world around me and how that related to my truth as I was seeing it unfold. Um, so that, you know, writing sort of pseudo-philosophically, if you like, for myself and for my own benefit, for my eyes only, that's really, really important. Like. The fact that it was just for me, that nobody else was going to see it, it allowed me to lie, it allowed me to tell the truth, it allowed me to make mistakes, it allowed me to go wherever I wanted to. And that was a, a huge part of my personal training, if you like. Um, but I feel like in the first instance as well, um, being a Jehovah's Witness was actually hugely beneficial in terms of supplementing my education, um, particularly um, in literary terms because I was very devout. I was studying the Bible every day, um, studying all the uh, Bible-based literature that the Jehovah's Witnesses create. I was giving talks from the platform, writing my own talks from about the age of nine. So um, it was um, always what I would do, if you like. I wrote my first short story when I was six. <laughs> and it was a plagiarism of the blob. <laughs> this huge ball of jam taking over a small town. <laughs> so on a certain level, you were writing as a sort of therapy almost to yeah. yourself. Yeah. Mm, was, yeah. there any, was there anything, any sort of therapy about the process that you went through? Absolutely. I mean, I've always written, and it's always been my refuge. And in fact, the first books I wrote weren't with words. They were just scribbles like this, because I just knew I was writing little pink books. So it has always been my safe place. I wasn't really aware while I was writing this debut that it would be quite so therapeutic. I didn't really understand the tendrils that it would reach into me. I don't know if you found this, Paul, but the further away I get from it, the more 
the wider scope I have to seeing what I was really doing. Right. At the time, I just thought I was writing a family story, but actually I was setting myself free. I was laying ghosts to rest, but not just the obvious ghosts in the family, but also very much ghosts inside of myself. Do you feel like your body is almost an editor in that sense? Absolutely. Because you know, yeah. sometimes you kind of get into um, a really terrible situation with your own work. I mean, I realize that I'm not supposed to write it at this time, if that's the case, like if it's that difficult. We were talking earlier about um, Robert's story. So yeah. um, the way Rainbow Milk is structured, um, Norman's story in the 50s, Jess's story in the 2000s, there's a missing generation, Jess's father, Norman's son. Um, I really wanted to in include his story in Rainbow Milk, but um, A, I didn't have time. So it would have required a lot of research to, to fill in that story. But B, I mean, I did try to sort of write this sort of first person narrative in his voice, having just learned he'd become HIV positive. And it was just so painful, yeah. so tragic and sort of, it made me feel really lonely actually. And I just realized that I couldn't pursue it. I'd have to wait until I was ready. I've had exactly that experience with subsequent work. Mm. where And I think it's really I important for writers to realise this as well, that when you, what you think is writer's block is just not now, <laughs> isn't it? And I've had that with subsequent working on something, and it just wasn't, I couldn't, it was too much. Mm. But, you know, that process, you come back to it and you just find another little avenue yep. through, don't you? Mm -hmm. It's always therapeutic. I don't see how it can't be. Mm. Do you? I the best period I had was um, when I'd submitted this third-person manuscript, and I got my sort of page of notes back from my editor, Charmaine. Um, and I spent two weeks, I'd sort of get up at six in the morning and go to bed at 10 p.m., and I'd work straight through for two whole weeks. And it was just the best time, mm. because I'd done the work. Yeah. And what I was doing was actually sort of focusing on little bits and really sort of bringing them out, mm. um, and just sort of enjoying it. Yeah. And I want that back. I want, I want to get back into that. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> Probably time for one last question. Patrick. Sponsors' privilege. Sponsors' <laughs> privilege. <laughs> Second novels, like second albums, notoriously are, are difficult and fraught with anxiety. I really hope you're not having that anxiety. I'd like to hear what you're writing next. Are you happy to divulge? Um, Give me a hint. I know, I know, I know <laughs> working on this. Why is everyone looking at me? <laughs> Do you want me to go first? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean, it's in, in extremely early, sort of primordi primordially early stages, but um, I'm, like I was just saying, very interested in um, the Robert story, so of um, gay black British men in the 80s dealing with what they're dealing with. Um, but also, I'm interested in the Midlands as well as a place and as a history. A lot of people don't know that Malcolm X visited Smethwick in the West Midlands a week before he was assassinated um, because, so very quick anecdote, but um, in the 1964 general election, um, a gentleman by the name of Peter Griffiths ran for the Conservatives on a sort of one subject ticket, and that was anti-immigration. Sound familiar? Um, but his, and I'm sorry for my language, but um, his motto was, if you want a nigger for a neighbor, vote Labour and he won 74% of the vote and promptly got kicked out of the next, at the next election in 1966. It had always been a safe Labour seat, but that was what people wanted and that's what they got. So activists 
in the Midlands at that time, black activists reached out to Malcolm X, who was just completing a tour of Africa, and he stopped off in Smethwick to encourage the people there and to show uh, brotherhood. Nobody really knows that. It's not really been sort of documented particularly. Needs, not a book in itself, but it needs to, we need to acknowledge that that is part of the history of black people in the West Midlands. Mm. Um, so that's kind of what I'm, that's the ballpark anyway. Yeah, down the road in Wolverhampton. Yeah. It was all happening in the Midlands. <laughs> yeah, 1968, Rivers of Blood, when he was uh, MP of Wolverhampton Southwest. He actually delivered that speech in Birmingham. Um, but yeah, the black country, that little tiny triangle with a million people. People don't really talk about it, but there's a lot of history there. I mean, well, um, my next book is set in the second half of the 1950s which was not a decade I knew, really, until now. And it's really about a marriage that's sort of born of class guilt, and it implodes uh, against the first CND march to Oldermaston. Um, so it's bookended by the Hungarian Revolution, and it ends with that march to Oldermaston. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a personal story, a marriage against a really engaged political backdrop. Great. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I think it's probably, we're probably running over a bit, but um, this is as good a time as any to finish it. Um, can you all just please put your hands together and thank Eleanor. <laughs> <laughs>